Would you take your Bible, please, and turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 6. And this morning we continue our verse-by-verse journey through this marvelous, marvelous Gospel. If you have a, an electronic device and you have the Bible on your iPad or iPhone, go ahead and click that Bible app and go to the appropriate chapter. We are considering... Verses 9 through 13 today, what is known as the Lord's Prayer, or probably more appropriate, the Disciples' Prayer. And we are seeking to understand what it means to pray in a way that pleases God. To pray in a way that pleases God. Do you ever wonder if in fact your prayers are pleasing to God? Do you ever think, I wonder if the Lord is really listening uh, as I pray? Well, today we're going to learn about the Lord's model given to us in this section, what it means and how it applies to our lives. Matthew chapter 6, I want to read these verses, I want to breathe a word of prayer, and then we will seek to set the context before us and unfold the passage. Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 9. Are you ready for the scripture? Jesus said, pray then in this way. Our Father, who is in heaven, you join with me. Hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. On earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts. As we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation. But deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom. And the power. And the glory. Forever. Amen. Lord as we come to your holy word. We desire to be taught by you or from you. And so we ask that you would give us wisdom, give us illumination, give us ears to hear, hearts to receive all that your word has to say to us. Protect us from distracting thoughts or wandering minds. And help us to embrace all that you have for us in your word. We commit ourselves to obeying what you teach us. We thank you for your promise that you will give us understanding. And we pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. J.C. Ryle was a, a bishop in England, London in particular, and he said of these verses these words. He said, these verses are few in number and are soon read, but they are of immense importance. No part of Scripture is so full and so simple 
as these verses before us. Uh, the Lord's Prayer, or as it is appropriately called, the Disciples' Prayer, is perhaps the most beautiful prayer in all of the Word of God. And yet, it is also, in many ways, one of the most abused prayers in the world. As we come to this text, we want to understand that this is a prayer given by the Lord Jesus Christ, and it is designed to be, if you will, a pattern for us, a model, an example, to help us to regulate our prayers and other prayers. Now, some kids learn this uh, prayer at their knees, at the knees of their parents. Uh, my wife told me that she first learned this prayer uh, in school. Uh, for there was a day in the history of this country when, when you went to school, there were two things that you did right up front. Uh, you said the Pledge of Allegiance and the Lord's Prayer. What do these words mean? And how do they apply to us? Well, by way of reminder, let me set this text in its context. We must remember that the Sermon on the Mount does not tell us how to be a Christian. The Sermon on the Mount tells us that if we are already Christians, this is how God expects us to live. This is what God expects of his children. How can you discern a true Christian from a false Christian? What Jesus teaches us in this sermon is that you can tell a true Christian from a false Christian because a true Christian lives a distinctive kind of life. Distinct in what way? Well, in chapter 5 of this sermon, he told us that one of the distinctive features of the Christian life is that a Christian seeks to live according to the law of God. A Christian does not ignore God's commands. Now, in chapter 6, Jesus is teaching us another distinctive feature of the Christian life. And it is this, that a Christian seeks to live his or her life in the presence of God or under the eye of God and not for the approval of men. Jesus said to the Pharisees in Luke chapter 16, verse 15, You are those who justify yourselves in the sight of men, but God knows your heart. For that which is highly esteemed in the eyes of men is detestable in the sight of God. Men esteem wealth. God esteems faith. Men esteem power. God esteems humility. And the underlying principle of this section before us is that we always must make a choice about who we're trying to please. Do we live to please men? Or do we live to please God? Now the reason Jesus sets this teaching before us is because we all face the danger of living our lives 
and trying to practice righteousness before men. That's what he has taught us in the context. Beware, verse 1, chapter 6, verse 1, beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Jesus has applied this to giving, and now he applies it to prayer. To prayer. Now, last week we considered the manner in which we should pray. And we discovered as we looked at verses 5 through 9, or 5 through 15, that Jesus tells us that the prayer that is acceptable to God is, first of all, a prayer that is offered in sincerity, a prayer that is offered in secrecy, meaning the secrecy of our own hearts, It is a prayer that is offered in simplicity, in brevity. It's not long-winded, complicated, high-voluted kind of uh, words that you use in prayer, but it's simple, clear words that you use, simple words. And it's prayer that is offered in a, a merciful spirit. You cannot ask God to forgive you and you won't forgive others. And so the prayers that please God have these distinctive features about them. Now we come to the matters, the matters about which we should pray. And there are six of them in the text, six of them. Now, don't worry. Some of you are saying, oh, boy, this is going to be a long sermon. Uh, I'm not going to try to touch on all six. Brother Lack asked me when I was first coming to this text, he said, are you going to take each one of these and preach a sermon on it, or are you going to take the whole section? And I remember saying to him at the time, I'm going to take the whole section. And then I start studying the, the text and discovered I can't, I can't do that. So we're only going to cover the first one today, and then we'll look at uh, uh, couples together as we walk, work our way through this in the, in the days to come. But I want to give you the six answers up front. Some of you note takers, you know, you, you're just you're listening for notes. And so once you get the point, that's all you're listening for. You tune me out until you get the point. So I'm going to give you the points up front so you can pay attention to the spirit of the text. All right. Six petitions are given in this prayer. And here they are. Jesus tells us that the matters about which we should be praying is, number one, the glorifying of God's name. That's in verse 9. Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Number two, the coming and consummation of his kingdom. Now, I've just recognized here that I did not give you guys note sheets where you just kind of fill in a word for the blank. So let me give you time to write down (laughs) the statement. And so we'll pause for a moment before we shift. I was told last week, hey, we switched slides too quickly. You don't give us enough time to write the points down. So I'll slow down for a second. The second point is the coming and the consummation of his kingdom. That's found in verse 10, the beginning of verse 10. Your kingdom come. Number three, the doing of his will. 
your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now some of you are so smart you think you don't really need to study this stuff because you all you got this prayer down. But this prayer is wonderfully deep and wonderfully helpful. So just try to open your mind a little bit and I think you'll learn something today. Number one, the glorifying of his name. Number two, the coming and consummation of his kingdom. We should be praying about that. Number three, the doing of his will. Now all of these kind of are, are in order, meaning they're like a chords on a, on a music note sheet. You can't play this chord and then skip over to this chord. You have to go in order, and we'll see that as we study this together. Number four, the supplying of our physical needs. Not greeds, needs. And there is a difference between our greeds and our needs, right? And so he says in verse 11, give us this day our daily rib. No. <laughs> give us this day our daily bread. That basic staple food that everyone needs to just live. Number five, we are to pray about the supplying of our spiritual needs. Verse 12, and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. Listen, do we understand, church, that when we sin against God, we owe God a debt. We sin against Him first and foremost. And our God is a God who is so gracious and so merciful that He has sent His Son to pay the price for our sin debt so that we might have reconciliation and fellowship with Him. And we need to be praying about the supplying of our spiritual needs. Last but not least, in this prayer we're going to discover what it means to pray and to pray about the continuing need of divine protection. Verse 13. And do not lead us into temptation. And is there anyone here who doesn't face temptations on a regular basis? Every single day we face temptations of all sorts, do we not? And we need God's divine protection because I tell you, temptations can come and so penetrate your heart and mind and inflame your lusts that it leads you down a road of making terrible choices. And so we need God's divine protection. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us. Deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. And all God's people said. All right. Now the way we're going to approach this passage today is we're going to understand that we need an overview. And I want to touch on some distinctive features of this whole prayer before we launch into the first point. Uh, it was uh, Sam Walton, that uh, founder of Walmart, that great businessman. It was said that he would fly over a city or a county where he was going to build one of his stores to check out the landscape and to, to see where the 
development was taking place. And there he would then plant one of his stores. It's important for us, as we come to this text, to have a flyover. To look at the landscape of this prayer because it has wonderful features. It develops and leads us in a particular direction. And so I want to point out, uh, by way of introduction, a few distinctives about this prayer. Number one, the first distinctive about this prayer is that it, it, it models for us order. Order in prayer. It models order. It is commonly understood that this prayer is actually two parts. The first three petitions are toward God. The second are three petitions that have to do with us. And and generally that's how scholars break this prayer up into two parts. But there are six requests as we have just looked. And these requests are crisp, clear, simple. And each petition is no longer than ten words. No longer than ten words. Um, as we see in the first three prayers, it concern God, concerns God's honor, God's kingdom, and God's will. The second three are all about our needs. And so there's order. There's order in this prayer. Order. Now, someone has said that uh, the purpose of a model house is not that you would live in that model house. But the purpose of a model house is to help you imagine a house of your own that you might live in it. That's the purpose of this prayer. This model prayer is not given to us to just repeat the same things. But it's given to us to help us to know how we ought to pray and the matters that we should pray about, and then expand on it in our own prayer life. So the first distinctive is that there's order in prayer. Number two, the second distinctive is this, that this prayer is is God-centered. God-centered. And this signals to us that uh, true prayer, effective prayer, prayer that pleases God is theocentric. It is God-centered. It starts with our Father who art in heaven. It ends with yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory. And if we examine our own prayer life, we discover that, uh, you know, often our prayers are so self-centered, aren't they? They're so self-centered, they're not God-centered. And this is a danger that we face as we pray. You know, we are afraid, we don't want to be. We are in trouble, we want to be free from that trouble. We have a need, we want to be free from that need. And it's all about us. But our Lord teaches us here that prayer is not to be self-centered. It is to be God-centered. God-centered. That doesn't mean that you can't pray about your own needs. But prayer that is only all about your own needs will cause you to become self-focused. Can I get a witness here? So I've given you two distinctives of this model prayer. The first one is that there's order in prayer. 
I don't need to rush into God's presence talking about my needs so much as starting with understanding who God is. Secondly, in this prayer, it's to be, our prayers are to be God-centered. And that's what we learn. God-centered. Last but not least, this overview teaches us of this prayer is that prayer is not easy. Prayer is not easy. You see, naturally, we are prone to pray self-centered prayers. But this model, what it does is it cuts across the grain. It cuts across our inclination so that we might have a God-centered prayer life. Nevertheless, the model that Jesus gives us teaches us that prayer is like the air we breathe. It is vital for our lives. We absolutely need to pray. But prayer is not as easy as breathing. It's not. If that's the case, our prayer meeting would be full on Wednesday nights. And people will tell you often, oh, prayer is easy. No, it is not. It is hard work. God-centered prayer is hard work. It requires determination. It requires a resoluteness. It requires a discipline. And perhaps... This is why we are given this model prayer. Because God wants us to know that yes, words matter. But you don't need many words. Fewer words are needed in prayer. We need to spend more time pondering. And less time speaking when we pray. But often, we, we, we use more words than we need to in prayer. And what Jesus wants us to understand is that if we spend time reflecting on what words really mean and to whom we are saying them, then we will have a more fruitful prayer life. Now, I need to just correct some thinking real quick. I'm not saying that Prayer should be brief. Uh, I'm saying that the words that we use in prayer should be brief. The great men and women of history have been those who have prayed long, but they used few words. They used words that were weighty, words that were simple, but they were reflective words. And as you'll notice as you just kind of look at this prayer, there's no poetic language here. There's no musical cadence here. There's no high-sounding theological words. Simple, direct, sincere. And our Lord is teaching us that our prayers are to be simple, direct, and sincere. It is comprehensive. It covers the entire landscape of heaven and earth. Nothing is left out. The whole realm of existence is found in this prayer. Do you notice? He speaks of heaven and earth. Everything is covered. God, the church, others. Things physical, things spiritual. The past, the present, the future, it's all covered in this prayer. Adoration, confession, petition, 
It's all here, right in this prayer. Simple, comprehensive, brief. What a prayer this is. What a model this is. Now that we have had that extensive introduction, which I think is necessary, let's now consider one point from this prayer, the glorifying of God's name. Notice in verse 9, Jesus begins by saying, Pray then in this way. Stop. The King James Version renders this, After this manner, therefore pray. So Jesus is giving us a clear contrast uh, from how a pagan or an unbeliever prays and how a believer prays. As we come to God, what do we come to God knowing? Well, look at verse 8. So, do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. So as we come in prayer, we come with the full confidence that though we don't get the words right, we don't have to use a lot of words. Why? God already knows. God already knows what you need before you ask him. Pagans think that because of their many words, they will be heard. That they will somehow tire God out and then God will give them what they request. Jesus said, don't be like those pagans. When you pray, know that you're speaking to an omnipotent, omniscient Father who knows exactly what you need before you even utter a word. Now you come into his presence with that knowledge and then pray in this way. Now notice, he did not say, this is what you should pray. He did not say, pray these words. No, but rather, he says, this is the way in which you should pray. Pray along these lines. It's a summary of the matters that we should be praying about. And so he first teaches us that when we pray, we should be concerned about the honoring of God's name. The glorifying of his name. And the main point of this first part is this. That God's name, write this down. God's name cannot be honored until his fatherhood is known. God's name cannot be honored until his fatherhood is known. If we are to pray in a way that pleases God, there first of all must be, and let me show you three parts in this simple first petition, there must be a recognition of a spiritual relationship. That's the first point. There must be a recognition of a spiritual relationship. It begins, our Father, our Father. Jesus places at the very forefront of this model prayer the importance of recognizing that you're in a unique spiritual relationship to God. 
It's the only way that prayer can be acceptable to him. It must start here. You see, the disciples' prayer is actually a family prayer. It's a family prayer. It must be uttered by those who are in the family. And those who are in the family address God as our Father. Can I get a witness here? Now, although, although God is referred to as the Father of lights and the Father of glory, as the genitor, the protector, the begetter of creation or life itself, Acts 17.28, He only becomes our Father in a personal and intimate and transforming way. When we are adopted into His family, by faith in Jesus Christ. You see, the Bible teaches that although God gives common grace to all, which we discovered in chapter 5, verse 45 and 46, He gives common grace to all, He gives saving grace to some, to those who trust Christ. And to those who trust Christ, they can say to Him, Father, Father, this is one of the great errors of today that we hear about. Many people believe that God is the father of everyone. He's the father of everyone, even of those who reject Jesus. Jesus plainly taught in John chapter 8, verse 44, that the one who rejects him is not a child of God, the father, but they're actually a child of the devil. According to Jesus' own teaching in John 8, and 40, John 8 44, the, the Jews and the Pharisees had rejected him. And Jesus said, you are of your father, the devil. So what Jesus teaches is that God is not the father of everyone. He's not the father of those who reject him. I think R.C. Sproul gets it right when he says that God only has one son. Only one son. Everybody else is adopted. He only has one son. So here's the question. When and how does one become adopted into the family of God? How does that happen? Thank you for asking. If you turn in your Bible to John chapter 1, verse 12 and 13, we will see. John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. Here's the question, how and when does one become adopted into the family of God? And here's what John tells us. John chapter 1, verse 12. But as many as received him... That is Christ. To them, he gave the right. He gave the power. He gave the authority to become what? Children of God. Even to those who believe in his name. Verse 13. Who were not, who were born not of blood. That is to say, it's not about human relationships nor of the will of the flesh, 
In other words, you just don't determine to do this and it happens. Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man. That is, it's not the persuasion of someone else who's going to get you into the family of God. But who were born of God. They were born of God. There's a divine regeneration that must take place in your heart that brings you into the family of God and gives you faith to believe, then you become adopted into the family. So, when does one become an adopted part of the family? When one responds to Christ by faith. How does it happen? It happens when God regenerates your heart, gives you faith to believe, to repent and to believe. And so back to our prayer now, back to the model prayer. Although our relationship with God as our Father is unique, and it is unique, it is not exclusive. Because notice the first part, our Father. See, He is not just my Father, but He is the Father of all who believe. He is our Father. Can I get a witness here? See, we're part of a corporate relationship. And so this is why when some speak about their relationship with God as some private matter that no one else has the right to talk about or to question them about, they got it all wrong. Because though it may be a personal matter, it's also a corporate matter. Because now I'm a part of a family. A family of faith. Can I get a witness here? And so we've asked an important question. We've asked how and when can you, do you become a part of the family of God? That happens by faith when one is regenerated or born again. Now I want to ask another important question. And that is, how can you know if you have been born into the family? Legitimate question? So let me answer it with the scripture. Turn with me to Romans chapter 8. Verses 14 through 17, because Paul explains it in this way. This is how we can know that we are a part of the family of God. Romans 8, beginning at verse 14. The Apostle Paul is expounding on some of the most wonderful truths concerning the believers' uh, deliverance from sin and this wonderful blessing that we've been given in Christ. Verse 14, he says, For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. Now, that leading of the Spirit of God does not mean that there's no no interrupted process in, in, in the course of it. Sometimes our our walk with the Lord is interrupted by the flesh. You know, as we stumble by the enemy. But this is talking about our primary way of life is that we are led by the Spirit of God. Verse 15. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons or daughters by which we, we, it's we, we cry out, Abba, Father, Verse 16, the Spirit himself 
testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. How do you know you're a child of God? You know you're a child of God because your primary way of life is that you're being led by the Spirit of God. You have been given the Spirit of Christ by which you cry out to God regularly as your Father and you suffer with Him. You suffer. Just as the Son suffered before glory, all of His children suffer before glory. For righteousness' sake, let me add. And so what we find in these words is that we can know that God is our Father. Do you know that? Do you know God as your Father because you have personally trusted Jesus? See, in the church there should have been an amen. Even if it was a quiet one, amen. So first and foremost, there's a recognition of a spiritual relationship. Now, here's the next thing we see in this first part of this prayer of honoring God's name. There is a reminder of his rule. Go back to Matthew 6 now. Pray then in this way. Our Father, that's the recognition of a spiritual relationship, who is in heaven. That is a reminder of his spiritual rule, of his sovereign rule. Now, come up close and listen. Whatever your view of fatherhood is, it may be low. You may have a low view of fatherhood because you were not treated well by your father or perhaps you don't even have no relationship with your earthly father. But whatever your view is, whether it's low or high or debased or delightful or encouraging or painful, this phrase tells us that God is not like your father. God is in heaven. He is unique. He is sovereign. He is holy. He is perfect in all of His ways. He is kind in all of His deeds. He is unlike anyone in the universe. He is our Father, our God, who art in heaven. And so as we pray and we think about this special relationship, Jesus reminds us now that as we come to God as our Father, He has a sovereign rule. And so if our Father points to His nearness, who art in heaven points to His transcendence. He is above it all. He is in heaven. Jesus reminds his disciples and us that when we pray, we pray to a father whose abode is in heaven. We pray to God, our father, who is not just a divine being, but he is a he's become personal to us as our father. But even in that personal 
intimacy that we have received in Jesus Christ, he is still transcendent. And so we come to him in a spirit of reverence because he is in heaven. Are y'all hearing me? Some folks try to make it seem as if when you talk to God, you should talk to God like he's your buddy. He is not your buddy. He is God, who is your father. You know, I had a a pretty good relationship with my earthly father. And my dad was a very warm person. He... uh, he was disciplined. He spent some years in the army. He taught me some things about discipline. <laughs> but he was also very warm. But I always knew that I could not talk to my dad like I talked to my friends. Uh, uh, there was a respect. There was a fear, a holy fear that I had of my father because I knew that he was not like anyone else. When we pray to God, we are to remember who he is, where he abides. And as we come reverently to him and humbly to him, as we come in weakness, as we come in humiliation, let us remember he knows everything before we ask him. And as we come to him, let us remember that everything is open and laid bare to him. There's nothing in the dark to him. Let us remember as we are praying that if we have committed sin, he will forgive if we ask him. He knows, he sees it all. And this God, our Father, who art in heaven, has the power to bless and the power to punish. That our God, as we come to him in prayer, is able to save, but he's able to destroy too. Our Father, who is in heaven, is just, and he's holy, and he's righteous. And we must remember that he can do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we ask or think. As we come to him, let us remember that our Father is more anxious to bless us, then we are even to be blessed. Our Father, as we come, we're in His presence. We live in His presence. We we move in His presence. And this is why we should live holy lives. Because nothing is hidden from Him. So what does this mean for us? That He is Sovereign Father who is in the heavens. What does this mean? Well, thank you for asking. Let me point you to one verse, perhaps two, and then we'll move to our final point. Ecclesiastes chapter 5 tells us what this means for us by way of application. Ecclesiastes chapter 5. It's right after the book of Proverbs. Ecclesiastes 5. Verses 1 and 2. So if we understand he's in heaven and he's our father, this is how it works. You got it? Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 1. Follow with me now. Guard your steps as you go to the house of God. 
the first thing that tells us is this. We prepare for worship, people. We prepare for worship. Okay, We don't just say, okay, it's time to go to church. We should live worshipful lives all week long. But as we come to the house of God, we should prepare ourselves for worship. Guard your steps as you come to the house of God and draw near to listen. Rather than offer the sacrifice of fools. Now what is the sacrifice of fools? It's running their mouth all the time. Just running their mouths. Not having any due consideration to what they're saying and who it's affecting and what it means. I was in the barber shop a couple of weeks ago. You probably can tell. But uh, there was a guy in a chair. I was waiting on him, waiting on uh, my turn. And this guy was bragging about the fact that no one can out-talk him. And he just was going on and on and on and on and on. And I said, oh, Lord, help me not to judge this man. But help me to learn that there's a reason why we need to be quiet. And God gave us two ears and one mouth. That we should listen more than we speak. He said, who are you to say that, Pastor? You've been speaking to me for 45 minutes here. All right, now, give me some grace. I'm one of the brethren. Draw near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know they are doing evil. Verse 2. Look at it there. Do not be hasty in word or impulsive in thought to bring up a matter in the presence of God. For God is where? God is in heaven. And you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be You see how this should affect us? The application, if we understand who God is and his sovereign rule, then we take thoughts captive and we let our words be measured and thoughtful as we pray. Guard your steps as you come to worship. Examine your heart. Choose your words carefully. Because we shall give an account of every word at the judgment seat of Christ. Open your heart to God. He knows. Open your heart to Him. It's okay to tell Him all about it. It's okay to tell Him all about it. But remember, to meditate more than you talk. Last but not least, There must be, if we're going to glorify God's name, there must be a recognition of a spiritual relationship. Secondly, there must be a reminder of his rule. But the last thing we see is that there must be a respect of his name. Our Father, who is in heaven, last part, hallowed be thy name. God's name stands for God himself, as revealed in Scripture. In ancient times, you know, a person's name was an expression of the person himself or his position, sort of like nicknames today. Now, I grew up in this area. Matthew Henson is where my grandmother lived, and I went to school at Paul Lawrence Dunbar School right down the street. 
My, my parents actually lived off of 19th Avenue in Rozier. And uh, we often gave nicknames to people in the neighborhood, you know. And so if a person was skinny or thin, we might call him Skinny Jones, you know. Or if a person was tall, you know, we might call him Big Ben. Or if a person was, you know, short, you know, we might call him Shorty McGee. We would, we would give nicknames to the person that kind of reflected their person. This is true with respect to the names of God. God's name reveals God himself. And there are many names of God in Scripture, from Old to New Testament. Old Testament, he is Elohim, the creator of heaven and earth. He is El Elyon, the Most High God, in Genesis chapter 14. In Exodus 3, he revealed himself to Moses as Jehovah, or the great I Am. In Genesis 22, we see him as Jehovah Jireh, the Lord, our provider, who provides. In Exodus 4, he is Adonai, the Lord, but there's really one name that you need to know, that perfectly expresses all that he is in one person. And it is the name of? It is the name of? It is the name of Jesus. Let us not be ashamed of the name of Jesus, for there is no other name given among men by which we must be saved than the name of Jesus. Now the word hallowed here means set apart. It means to be treated as holy. In other words, what we are taught here is that when we are praying, that we are to acknowledge that God is unlike any other. He is set apart and we are to hold his name in reverence. We're not to use his name flippantly. Or to take his name in vain. But we are to honor and to glorify his name. So how do we do that? How do we glorify God's name? Well, I close with these thoughts here. To honor God's name means to know God's name. And to know God's name means to hold God's name in the highest reverence. And in the highest respect. He said, Pastor, I, 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 I reverence God's name. I, I respect God's name. Well, that's what some religious people said in the Old Testament. And in Malachi chapter 1, God said to those priests, A son, a son honors his father and a servant his master, then if I am a father, where is my honor? If I'm a master, where is my respect? Can I get personal with you for a moment? We don't honor God's name when we say we believe in prayer, but we don't spend any time in prayer privately and don't pray corporately with other Christians. We don't honor God's name when we say 
we are believers in Christ. But we are unwilling to be committed to the gospel advance and missions and evangelism. We don't honor God when we say we belong to his body, but we can hardly find any time to serve him in his church. Martin Luther asked this question in his greater catechism. How is God's name hallowed among us? And then he gave this answer. When our life and our doctrine are truly Christian. Is our, our, is our lives, is our doctrine truly Christian? Leads me to think of that prayer that I first heard sitting around a campfire when I was a young boy up in Payson, Arizona. And they would lead in song at night. Lord, I want to be a Christian in my heart. In my heart. Lord, I want to be a Christian in my heart. Do you want to be a Christian in your heart? My time is up. I trust and pray that God has spoken to us clearly. That our life would honor his name. That our doctrine is truly Christian. In order for us to honor God, we must grow in sanctification. As we grow in holiness, our lives will honor him. And our belief will be scriptural. Let's pray. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. No one's looking around. No doubt I'm speaking to people today, some of whom are in the family. And as you pray, remember what Jesus has taught us. Others of you said, Pastor, I I don't have that intimate relationship, but today I've been brought to a place where I recognize I need it. I need it. I I need this intimacy. I, I, I want it. And you have instructed me to come to Jesus. And so, Pastor, I want to come to Jesus. So right now where you're at, bowed in prayer, would you submit your heart to God? Submit your life to God. Would you confess your rebellion, your ignorance, your unbelief of God and ask him to give you faith to believe? Would you pray, O Lord, My sin has offended you and I've been so rebellious against you. But I see my need now and I come to you as a father who sent his son to die for my sin. Jesus, be my savior, be my king, be my Lord, be my master. I turn from my sin and I surrender my heart to you now. It is not words, dear friend, that save you. But if God has given you faith to believe, he will accept you on the basis of his son's perfect work. 
and will adopt you into his family and give you his spirit. The next thing you need to do is you need to thank God for his love. And you need to tell somebody, today I trusted Christ as my Savior. Father, I pray now that faith would be given to those who are still outside the kingdom. And for those who are in the family, we thank you for teaching us that honoring of your name is first and foremost. Help us to do so in Jesus' name. And all God's people said...